This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In the summer of 1949, the FBI learned that secrets regarding the construction of the atomic bomb had been shared with Soviet spies. An immediate investigation led to the arrest of several people, including a young mother of two. Was this woman part of a communist plot, or was she an innocent scapegoat swept up in one of the most sensational trials in U.S. history? This is the Ethel Rosenberg story. Megan, buckle up. I know. I, I don't know actually the story. I know the outcome, but I am really curious about all the details. This is not the type of case that we typically cover. Now, this all started because you know how much I love reading biographies and memoirs. Right. Well, I read a biography by Anne Seba. It was a New York Times, it was like on the New York Times bestsellers list, and she wrote a biography on Ethel Rosenberg. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Never thought I'd cover the case, but you know, let's broaden our horizons every now and then. I think we should. No, it's interesting. But if you're not a history buff, you know, you're going to have to pay attention here. I'm going to pay attention. I like learning. (laughs) Okay, Megan. Well, we have some exciting things in the pipeline, don't we? Yes, for Patreon we do. For our patrons, we are adding um, some new perks to our tiers. One in particular, I had this idea, but then when we met with our last AMA, I discussed it with the patrons and they all loved it. And the idea is for a true crime book club. So in addition to Amy's fun and educational classes, anyone who is in the Femme Fatale and Lifers Patreon tier, they are also going to be able to join my book club if they want. So please stay tuned. I'll be sending all that information out shortly. And I can't wait to meet with you and chat true crime or crime fiction. And obviously, as we get going, I'll um, let everyone, you know, kind of have a hand in picking our selections, too. I'm really excited about this, Amy. Any thoughts on your first book or is that proprietary? I have so many thoughts, but unfortunately, I have too many books right now. Uh, But stay tuned uh, otherwise for additional perks that we'll be announcing soon as well. Megan, that sounds exciting. Wait, am I invited? I don't know. Are you in the femme fatale or lifers? <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, Amy. Well, I don't mean to call you out, Megan, but I did not see you in attendance at my last lecture. That's a good point. All right, Megan, before we get into Ethel Rosenberg, I just want to give two quick shout outs to Dagny from Iceland, who offered us a room if we're ever in town. We oh. might take you up on that. Yeah. And Lacey. Thank you both so much for your support. Thanks, everyone. And again, stay tuned for some new perks coming your way. All right. And now let's get into Ethel Rosenberg's story. Ethel Greenglass was born into a family of Jewish immigrants in New York City on September 28, 1915. Her parents were Barnett and Tessie Greenglass, and this family really struggled to make ends meet for their four children, as did many immigrants at this time in New York City. Now, Ethel was the firstborn. She had two brothers who were born after her, but she also had an older stepbrother. It was her father's son from a previous marriage. By several accounts, Ethel and her mother, Tessie, had a very strained relationship. Reports say that Tessie resented her only daughter and favored the youngest son, David. Hmm. And reports say Tessie was just generally just kind of unhappy and not a very loving mother. But Ethel got along with the rest of her family pretty well. Ethel's father, Barnett, ran a repair shop for sewing machines while Tessie took care of the children. 
Now, the Greenglass family, they lived in a two-room tenement apartment on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. For people who don't know, tenements were very common during this time for poor immigrant families. They were low-rise buildings. They had multiple apartments. They were very narrow, typically made up of three rooms. And because the rents were low, these housing units were the common choice for new immigrants in New York City at the time, because this is before public housing. Mm -hmm. Have you been to the Tenement Museum? I was just going to ask you the same thing. Of course I have. Yeah. So the problem is it was not common for a family of, say, 10 to live in like a 300 square foot apartment. And for those of you who have had the chance to visit the Tenement Museum, it's on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And you need to go if you're ever in Manhattan. It's a historically preserved tenement building. Mm -hmm. Now, these homes barely met or really failed to meet the minimum standards of safety, sanitation, Mm -hmm. comfort, often no heat, poor ventilation, cramped quarters, and no indoor plumbing. There were some laws passed by 1918 to help improve these living conditions, but the landlords were notoriously stingy. These were kind of the original slumlords. Yes. Okay. Growing up, Ethel was very involved in the arts. She was an excellent singer. She was an excellent. She was excellent at acting. She was very involved in theater. She attended a religious elementary school and then she went to a public high school. And she was very bright. I mean, she excelled in school. This is clear because in 1931 she graduated high school at the young age of 15. Wow. And she soon began working as a secretary for the National New York Packing and Shipping Company. Now her parents would not pay for college, but she was definitely bright enough to go to college. But at this time, it was commonplace for women to stay home or start working until they have their own families. Right. While Ethel was in this position, she became an active member of a workers' union, and this union was organizing strikes and protests. In fact, she was ultimately terminated for organizing a huge women worker strike to combat poor working conditions and low salaries. She was also a member of the Young Communist League, which was developed around 1920. Now, this was a communist organization that was based in the United States. So we're going to stop here and go off course for a minute because I want to give a brief lesson in communism and its relationship with the U.S. during this time. This will give you and, of course, our listeners some important context about Ethel and the era in which she was living in. Okay. Communism is a political and economic system where all properties and factories are owned by the public. This is different than our system where much of the property is privately owned. Now, the idea in communism is that people work for the common good And in return, the government doles out benefits, you know, such as money, health care and food. Mm -hmm. And this would be according to people's needs. Okay. Essentially, communists believe in widespread universal social welfare and a planned economy. Mm -hmm. This is in contrast to a capitalist society where there is no central authority and individuals and companies can make their own production and pricing decisions, which would be, of course, influenced by market forces, otherwise known as supply and demand. Right. Now, what I just described are the extremes. But in reality we see that pretty much all governments have some sort of mix of socialist and capitalist systems. Oh, sure. Many communist thinkers have framed capitalist societies as a struggle between two classes. You remember this from history? Not just history. I teach this in one of my- You do? Yeah, this relates to conflict theory. So go ahead. Well, we have the proletariat, also known as the working class, and these people make up the majority of society. But then we also have what? The bourgeoisie. They are the owners. They own the means of production. And this was key in Karl Marx's teaching. And that's kind of how I teach it in my conflict theory course of criminology. You know, many communists see the relationship between the workers and the capitalists as exploitative, hence conflict theory, right? Right. So basically, the rich get richer off the backs of the workers. Right. 
So the solution to this problem in a society to a communist revolutionary would be a communist revolution where the social order would be upended and restructured, really, for one that is more in favor of workers and their rights. Mm -hmm. So historically, communism has had an appeal among the working class. Right. Especially when times are tough. Mm -hmm. And this is even true in America, too. Prior to World War II, during the Great Depression, many Americans turned to communism. And this was after they became frustrated with capitalism because many saw capitalism as the source of their suffering. Sure, I understand that. And there were also a lot of labor movements and protests during this time where communist ideals played an influential role. And by the end of the decade, there were an estimated 55,000 members of the Communist Party in the U.S. So we're talking, you know, 1930s. Okay. So, of course, Megan, people in the United States are technically free to believe in and support whatever party they want. The issue, however, was that the U.S. Communist Party received substantial support from the Russian Soviets. Mm. So to many Americans, this funding represented an unjustified meddling in our country's affairs. Got it. So I found this helpful, although it's a lot of, you know, historical context. I didn't really understand all of this until I really, you know, dove into it. Right. So there were also some examples of communist members in the U.S. that were involved in espionage for the Soviet Union. Oh. Now, espionage is the practice of spying or of using spies. Mm -hmm. And it's typically by the government to obtain political and military information. Espionage is a federal crime, and the CIA heads most law enforcement efforts related to espionage. And in fact, espionage became a federal offense in 1917, right after the U.S. entered World War I. Okay. This was the time of the first Red Scare. Have you heard of the Red Scare? Yes. People think of McCarthyism, where yes. Senator McCarthy accused Hollywood actors of being communists during the 1950s. Well, that was also known as the Red Scare, but it was the second one, not the first one, because oh. the first Red Scare actually came after World War I. And I didn't know this, but it was named for the red flags often used by communist regimes. I did. I don't think I knew that um, it was the second Red Scare. Around this time, there were waves of communist revolutions. So in 1917, we had the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Mm -hmm. Elites in the U.S. were very concerned that labor strikes in the U.S. were perhaps the beginning of a communist movement. And, you know, these were portrayed by the press as threats to society that were inspired by left-wing ideologies. In other words, you know, we were worried that there would be a revolution happening here, just like was happening in Russia. Right. There was also an anarchist plot where 36 bombs were mailed to politicians, officials, and industry leaders, including John D. Rockefeller, the attorney general, and a Supreme Court justice. Wow. Somewhat confirming everyone's worst fears. So in reaction to these fears, there were several laws, such as the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Anti-Anarchist Sedition Act of 1918. Basically, these were passed to control leftist propaganda and to deter people from giving state secrets to foreign entities. Okay, Megan, so thank you for sticking with me. But the point here is that there was a lot of concern about communism in the United States at this time. Got it. Now let's get back to our story because we were telling a story about Ethel. I remember. <laughs> Okay. In 1936, Ethel was performing. Remember, she was a singer. She was mm -hmm. performing at a New Year's Eve benefit. Through, it was a communist organization. And it was here that she met a man named Julius Rosenberg. So reports say that she was very nervous and he approached her and kind of helped her. And he says it was love at first sight. Mm. Julius was three years Ethel's junior. Okay. Julius was also the son of Jewish immigrant parents, and he was studying engineering at City College, and he was also an ardent communist. Okay. Now, the two got married on June 18th, 1939. 
And during the early years of their marriage, they lived in an apartment in the Knickerbocker village on the Lower East Side. Got it. Soon into their marriage, the United States entered World War II. Now, this was on December 7th, 1941, after Japan attacked the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor. It wasn't all bad news around this time, though. The couple had their first child, Michael, in 1943, and then they had another son, Robert, in 1947. So now a mother, Ethel, no longer pursued singing or theater, and she committed herself to raising her children, as was common during this time. Okay. She was a very hands-on mother. She even took parenting classes. She was always trying to better herself. Mm. Meanwhile, Julius worked as a civilian for the United States Signal Corps from 1940 to 1945. You know where he worked? No. Do you know where Fort Monmouth is? Yes. That's like right around the corner for me. Yeah. Fort Monmouth is a military base in Monmouth County, New Jersey, which is, you know, right down the block for me pretty much. Anyway, Julius conducted important research during World War II, particularly on communications, electronics, and missile control. He was still very much involved in communist activities during this time. But it wasn't until 1943 when he got involved in espionage. Oh. Yes. A Soviet consultant who was a field officer, his job was to recruit prospective espionage agents. In other words, looking for people who were mm-hmm. supportive of the Communist Party in the United States. Right. Well, he crossed paths with Julius Rosenberg and the two would become quite close, and they would meet over 50 times over the next three years. And as all good spies do, Julius was also looking for recruits. He needed people who were communists, and more importantly, he needed people that he could trust. Now, who could he trust? I mean, I think if you're looking for someone to trust, probably a family member. Exactly. So he turns to his brother-in-law, David Greenglass. Now, David was Ethel's younger brother. He was born in 1922, and he was about seven years younger than Ethel. I remember, because he's the one that the mother favored. Exactly. In 1942, David had married 18-year-old Ruth Prince, and she was also the daughter of a Jewish immigrant living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Right. The couple shared an interest in politics and together joined the Youth Communist League. Now, this was shortly before David entered the U.S. Army in April of 1943. Oh, okay. Yeah, so in July 1944, David Greenglass was assigned to the Secret Manhattan Project. What's that? The top secret wartime project that was used to develop the first atomic weapon. Oh, wow. So it was after learning this that Julius was told that the recruitment of David was a top priority. Wow, of course, yeah. So you asked, Megan, what is the Manhattan Project? Yeah. So time for a history lesson once again. Okay. Because you got to put this into context. Okay. So the Manhattan Project started with a letter sent by Albert Einstein along with two other physicists. Now, they sent this letter to President Roosevelt in 1939. They informed the president that newly discovered science would allow for extremely powerful bombs to be built. Warning, quote, it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. They also hinted that the Nazis may have ambitions for such weapons. Mm. So after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, the U.S. was now at war and there was an urgency to speed along this new development. Right. They recognized that the country, whoever was the first one to discover this new technology would have a distinct advantage yes. in the world. Yes. But, you know, they were starting with 1940s technology. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge scientific and engineering undertaking that was required in order to make things happen. Okay. So to address this need, enter the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project employed more than 130,000 people. Now, we're talking physicists, engineers, technicians, machinists, secretaries. Mm -hmm. This was a huge undertaking. Now, you can imagine how hard it must have been to do a background check on 130,000 people in 1940. 
So as a security measure, they would keep information compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. So you might be working on a type of metal or something for a machine, but you would have no clue as to what the whole purpose was of the part you're working on. Right, that makes sense. So they employed all these people, but everyone had a very specific role. So nobody knew exactly what they were building. Just to illustrate the secrecy here, Life magazine in 1945 estimated that only about a dozen people knew the true intention of the Manhattan Project. Oh, okay. Yeah. They also passed laws that would punish disclosing any of the project's secrets by 10 years in prison or a fine of $10,000, which was, at the time, it would be like $160,000. So deterrent. Yeah. So they're really, you know, this is serious stuff. In September of 1944, Julius introduced both David and Ruth to his Soviet spy contact. Shortly after, he reported to his superiors in the Soviet Union that they are, quote, young, intelligent, capable, and politically developed. They strongly believe in the cause of communism and wish to do their best to help our country as much as possible. They are undoubtedly devoted to us. So as predicted, the relationship with these two, David and Ruth, would prove very useful to the Soviets. Mm Mm-hmm. And David did, in fact, pass along nuclear secrets to the Soviets, such as a sketch of the high explosive lens from the Manhattan Project. Now, this was done both via a courier, a man by the name of Harry Gold, and also directly to Soviet officials in New York City. Oh, this is very problematic because the high explosive lens is the heart of the atomic weapon. Oh, Now, I couldn't understand this, so James helped put this into perspective a little. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) But the way nuclear bombs worked back then is you would have an arrangement of conventional explosives surrounding a radioactive core. Okay. Okay. So imagine a soccer ball. Each of the patches on the ball is an explosive, and the air in the middle would be the radioactive core. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. Actually, I do understand that. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. (laughs) And when these explosives are triggered, they violently compress the radioactive material in the center initiating a nuclear reaction. Got it. Well, this lens diagram that Greenglass shared was the key component because it showed how to shape the radioactive material in a way that would focus the energy from the blast enough for the core to go critical. In other words, to go nuclear. This is very serious information. It's a key secret to the heart of the most powerful weapon in history. I understand. And David's wife, Ruth, was very much involved in the operation as well. She knew exactly what was going on, and she very much encouraged David to pass along the information. Oh, okay. So meanwhile, you have Julius, who is passing along more secrets to the Soviets. He was recruiting other people and also giving them weapon parts, full plans for the U.S.'s first fighter jet, and information on the process of making weapons-grade uranium. So not good stuff going on here. I'm assuming at some point you're going to mention how Ethel was involved. Yeah, don't forget. That is what this episode is about, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> so I was just like, I see all the, their roles here, but okay. And I think that's that's one of the points of this episode. I okay? think so too. Okay. okay. As I said it, I realized All it. right. I promise you were almost getting back to Ethel here. In December 1944, Julius provided Soviets with thousands of reports and most damaging detailed information on a proximity fuse that the U.S. was designing. And this was all in exchange for an Omega watch, a crocodile handbag for his wife, and a teddy bear for his son. Yeah, well, I'm thinking the gifts weren't the primary purpose. I I agree with you. Why is this such a big deal? Maybe not as big of a deal as what David was doing with, you know, giving the nuclear reactor information away. But a fuse is very important because it's the part that initiates an explosion. Yeah. 
So proximity fuses are specifically designed for targets such as planes, missiles, ships, ground forces, and they provide a more sophisticated mechanism than the common fuse. About a month later, on August 6, 1945, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, wiping out both cities. And soon after, Japan surrendered, ending World War II. Yes, that I remember. Unfortunately, though, the peace did not last long because on August 29, 1949, the Soviets tested their first nuclear bomb. And even though the test was secret, Western countries were able to detect the test by measuring the radioactive dust in the atmosphere. Right. Western countries were surprised that the Soviets were making such fast progress because this was years quicker than they thought it would happen. Right. So I think people start wondering, like, what is going on? So intelligence agencies were closing in because they were thinking, okay, something must be going on. Intelligence secrets must be being leaked. We need to identify who the rat is. Right. So now we're finally getting into the meat of the story. Okay. Intelligence agencies first discovered that a Los Alamos theoretical physicist by the name of Klaus Fuchs was spying for the Soviet Union during the war. Now, this would lead him to confessing and throwing some other people under the bus to save himself. Yeah, I'll bet. Remember the name Harry Gold? Not really. Okay, so Harry Gold, he was the courier that David yes. and Julius worked with. Yes, okay. So we have Klaus Fuchs. Throwing Harry Gold under the bus. So what do you think Harry Gold does? Well, he's got to give up someone too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, this actually reminds me of the case that you covered um, with the drug bus. Yes. When you're doing the mass drug bus and yes. to save your yep. own skin. House of Cards comes falling down, right? Right, right. So through Harry Gold, who struck a nice deal, the trail led to David Greenglass and eventually the Rosenbergs. When Fuchs was first captured, Julius and David started to panic because they knew they might be next. So Julius allegedly gave the green glasses $5,000, which is about 80000 in today's money, okay. to finance an escape to Mexico. Oh, wow. Instead, they went to the Catskills. That was not a good plan. <laughs> so the reason why they went to the Catskills, that's not totally clear, but it seems that what they did was they used the money to seek legal advice, which isn't a bad idea. But oh, okay. Ruth had also recently given birth. And she was recovering from a severe burn accident. So it's possible that international travel just wasn't feasible for them. Oh, I see. Okay. Maybe they should have taken Julius's advice because it was in June of 1950 that David Greenglass was arrested by the FBI for espionage. Now, some might say, why was he not arrested for treason? Do you know the difference between treason and espionage? Is it because it wasn't during wartime? Yes, exactly. So he, you couldn't charge them, any of these players, with treason because the U.S. was not at war with the USSR during this time. Interesting. Yeah. As others had done before him, David was quick to give up some names. Yeah. You know, he was quick to implicate his brother-in-law, Julius, and his sister, Ethel. Now, where does Ethel come into this, right? right. Okay, so he would later recant and deny her involvement. But in February of 1951, weeks before the trial, he again changed his testimony, claiming that Ethel was, in fact, involved. So basically, he said Ethel was involved. Then he recanted when he testified in front of a grand jury. Okay. And then in a few weeks before trial, he again claimed that Ethel was involved. He says that Ethel typed up important notes on, you know, the nuclear secrets that were traded. Okay. As part of his immunity agreement, David testified against Ethel and Julius. And in exchange for the testimony, the government allowed Ruth to stay with their two children. She was named a co-conspirator, but she was never indicted. 
And he got immunity. Partial immunity. Partial. Okay. Yeah, got partial it, yeah. immunity. She got nothing. She got full immunity. So basically, basically what, what David did here was he gave up his sister to save his wife. Yep, I see. And himself. And and himself. But I think he could have been saved by just giving up Julius. Okay. Got it. All right. So this was a very high profile case. The trial began in March of 1951 in the District Court for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. That's where I used to serve. Yep. Sorry. The trial was against then Julius and Ethel? Yep. They were tried together. Okay. And again, you're probably wondering, like, where does Ethel come into this? But, uh, I mean, okay. I, I see where she comes in now, yes. but... Yeah. The trial opened with the statement, quote, the evidence will show that the loyalty and alliance of the Rosenbergs were not to our country, but that it was to communism. Communism in this country and communism throughout the world. The love of communism and the Soviet Union soon led them into a Soviet espionage ring. David, Ethel's brother, was the prosecution's key witness. Right. And he presented very damaging testimony concerning his sister's role in the transfer of, remember those David Greenglass, those drawings of the nuclear reactor? Yes. So David says that with Julius there, Julius, David, and Ethel were together. And as David explained it, Ethel was typing up the notes. Okay. Ethel took the stand in her own defense. Unfortunately, it did her no favors. Oh. Particularly, her performance under cross-examination was very damaging, as we often see. Was she combative? She was very combative. She frequently invoked her Fifth Amendment right. Hmm. So when she was asked repeated questions related to espionage and then related to being a member of the Communist Party, she would just invoke her Fifth, which is, of course, the right against self-incrimination. Also, her demeanor was very off-putting to many spectators. She was seen as, you know, cool, unemotional. And this would go into a lot of these, like the gender discrimination that we see, because they were saying she's not a good mom. Look how cold she is. She doesn't care. She didn't fit with their idea of what, you know, a female should behave like. Absolutely right. At that time. And not answering questions, because again, I said, Julius did this also on the stand. He would invoke his fifth. This was problematic for the Rosenbergs because many people believe that the refusal to answer questions was an admission of guilt. Yeah. And that it just confirmed that they were involved in the Communist Party. I don't know what's any different now when people invoke their fifth. I think there's always going to be an assumption of a, a reason why you're invoking That's your why fifth. you're better off not taking the stand. That's absolutely right. Because if you take the stand and just say, like, I'm not answering. It's I'm, not going to do you any favors. You look like you're choosing not to answer. If you don't take the stand, you're just, yep. you know. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, the jury was not sequestered. Oh, wow. Can you explain quickly what uh, sequestered means? Yeah, sequestered means that they're not allowed to return home. They're going to be placed in a hotel or some other type of, you know, residential, uh, some somewhere else mm-hmm. to live, basically, so that they have no access to any outside influence, media, family, news reports, anything. Yeah, and usually there's two broad purposes. The first is to avoid inadvertent jury tainting. Right. But the second is to prevent intentional tampering Correct. with the jurors by bribery or threat. Correct. Some people say this was not, given the high profile nature of this case, they probably should have been sequestered. I would have thought so too. As we talked about with the Red Scare, the press was brutal during the trial because there was such fear about, you know, communism. Right. After just one day of deliberations, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of conspiracy to commit espionage. Once again, Ethel showed no emotion at all during the verdict or the sentencing. And as a result, many would say she was emotionless, which would, again, equate to her being a bad mother. Many accused her of being more committed to communism than to her own children, which is so unfair. She was very much involved in their lives throughout her whole incarceration. You could even read some of the letters she wrote her children, and they're heartbreaking. 
I think it's also these feelings probably made it easier for people to grapple with the verdict because soon to follow would be death sentence for both Ethel and her husband, Julius. Wow. So they were sentenced to death. The Rosenbergs were moved to Sing Sing prison to await the appeals that their attorney, of course, was filing. The United Gosh, they were both moved to Sing Sing. This yes. was before it was all male. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. The United States Court of Appeals rejected the first appeal in February of 1952. The United States Supreme Court turned down the subsequent application for a writ of certiori. Now, these are rarely used. It's when the appellate court decides to review a case at its discretion. Yep. One justice actually did dissent, but it didn't matter. No. In a last minute attempt to have the case heard again before the Supreme Court, Rosenberg's attorneys presented a strong enough argument that Justice Douglas granted a stay of execution on the court's last day before its summer recess. Oh, okay. So this was good news because, you know, the Rosenberg team was fully confident that over the summer, this momentum, because they had a lot of supporters, the Rosenbergs. Oh, okay. um, And they really felt that this momentum would grow and there would be worldwide support for clemency. Okay. Now, you might ask, like, why would the public support, you know, communist traitors? Well, a lot of people felt that they were really just being made scapegoats to the Cold War hysteria that was sweeping the nation at the time. And a lot of people thought that, you know, it's not right to put this young mother on death row because people were concerned that these two children would grow up, you know, without either parent. Okay. I also think there were some people that just felt that a death sentence was cruel and unusual, maybe because it was a crime of espionage, but I think more so because some people that are just... Um, opponents of the death penalty, in general, they're often very outspoken against death penalty cases. Sure. So in a nearly unprecedented move, Chief Justice Fred Vinson reconvened the court just to annul Justice Douglas's stay. Oh, wow. That doesn't happen. (laughs) Wow. Now, there were massive rallies. There were rallies in Times Square. There were petitions and letters and marches. There was even a last-minute appeal to President Eisenhower The Rosenberg's children even wrote letters to the president, and they were like four and eight at the time. That's sad. Fortunately, none of this was enough. The government was forging ahead to execute the Rosenbergs. And again, was this to make an example out of them? You know, general deterrence? Might be. I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but we know what the mode of execution was? Yeah. Okay. You'll get there. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed shortly after 8 p.m. on Friday, June 18th, 1959. Like her husband, Ethel Rosenberg died quietly with dignity, and up until her last breath, she maintained her innocence and the love for her children. So I just want to tell you this. They executed Julius first. Any idea why they chose to execute Julius first? I don't, I don't know if I made this clear, but they were trying to get Julius and Ethel to give up more names. And Julius and Ethel were tight-lipped. They had no names to give. Ethel says, I don't know anything, that, therefore I have no names. And Julius was just not giving up names. Okay. Okay. You know, up until like, you know, the last minute, they were like really trying, like, just talk, just talk. This doesn't have to happen. And they just wouldn't say anything. Now, they very strategically executed Julius first. Any idea why? Maybe they thought if Ethel saw this, like actually witness it, she'd be more likely to crack and give some names. Yep. That and I also think if Ethel went first, Julius would never talk. Right. Right. So, yeah. So yeah. it made sense. But, you know, unfortunately... No names were given, and they were both put to death by electric chair. Thousands of mourners came to honor Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, but not one of Ethel's family came. Her mother was still alive. Her mother did not come. Her Mm. mother never forgave her daughter for involving Mm. the younger brother, David, in her communist activities. Okay. So remember how the mother favored David. Yep, I do. Okay, so what happens to David and Ruth? 
So David was released from prison in 1960. Oh, he didn't serve very long at all. No, he served less than 10 years. Yeah. He moved to New York City and he reunited with Ruth and their children. They, of course, had new identities. Yeah. And they kind of went quiet. Yep. Ruth, yeah, Ruth died on April 7th, 2008 at the age of 83. Oh. Now, this only became widely known when the government released her grand jury testimony a few weeks later. So remember, she had an alias. Nobody knew it was her. So nobody knew what happened to her. Okay. And then David Greenglass died in 2014 at the age of 92. Wow. I heard a few interviews with David Greenglass. And you should look this up. It's pretty interesting because... He pretty much admits up until his death that Ethel really had nothing to do with anything. So she really didn't. So did she know about what Julius was doing? We'll never know. But did she type up those nuclear secrets? Apparently not. If I had a guess, I would say she probably knew. Yeah. It seemed like she shared the ideology, but that doesn't mean she had, she was complicit in any scheme. And if the only evidence, you know, comes from an informant who's saving his own hide, then that's not reliable, but that's not the system. I can't even believe that this woman was put to death on such a little evidence, but we'll get there. Okay. You know, there's few legal cases in our country that have raised as many questions as this case. Regardless of questions concerning the guilt or innocence of the accused, legal scholars agree that some of the actions on the part of the government players likely compromise the integrity of their case. How so? I'm sure you're going to give me some examples here. Yeah, so one popular critique is that the trial, really compared to present-day standards, was remarkably fast. Mm -hmm. It began on March 6th, and the jury convicted both of them by March 29th, and then they were put to death that summer. That's very quick. That is so fast. The average time on death row is about a decade. I know. So that was really fast. And many people question the competency of the defense attorney, but we see that often. Mm -hmm. But others pointed out that even if the Rosenbergs did pass secrets along to the Soviets, During World War II, Russia had been an ally, not an enemy of the United States. So why was this punishable by death? It's not that secrets were given to one of our enemies. Okay. So many people, as the years go on, there's tons written on this case now. Many believe that they were victims of gross governmental misconduct. Mm -hmm. And the punishment certainly did not fit the crime. And that really they were just made examples of. What was the purpose of all this? Because the Soviets were already well ahead on developing the bomb and they only used the secrets shared to cross-check work that had already been being done. The purpose was to make an example of them and scare people, deter people from any communist affiliations. Yeah, so it seems that we could never actually know the truth, Mm -hmm. but it, it seems like the Soviets would have been able to produce this bomb with or without the information. So if you're really going to look at how much harm did this information sharing do, it's really hard to say. Mm -hmm. But of course, there are still many Americans that believe that Julius and Ethel were guilty by virtue of them being communists. They were un-American. Okay. So what do we think? I mean, I think it is clear that Ethel was unfairly convicted. There is no direct evidence tying Ethel to any spy activities, and it's unclear how much she knew of her husband's dealings with the Soviets at all. Even if it was enough to convict, should she have been executed? No. No. <laughs> no. I'm not co- I'm not convinced. And obviously, I didn't do as deep a dive as you did, but I'm not convinced that she was guilty. And even if she was, I don't think the punishment fits the crime. No. So what kind of theories can help us understand what happened here? I mean, we can talk about theories that help us understand why Julius did what he did. And then we so can move to... So do you mean to, why they committed yeah. these acts or why they... 
So I would say, you know, you had explained the initial conditions of, you know, communism, and mm-hmm. it sounds like it relates a, a lot to conflict theory yeah. here. You have the upper kind of classes controlling the lower classes, mm-hmm. and there's almost like a strain and frustration, right? Yeah, because the those. Rosenbergs were part of the lower class. Yeah, they were part of that. So I feel like conflict theory helps explain um you know, why these conditions came about and why they, you know, chose to look at communism. But then if you want to explain why they were made examples of and punished, I would say labeling theory here. Mm -hmm. They were labeled by the government and labeled by, you know, anyone reporters as kind of the enemy, like those communists. So I think labeling theory is the reason why they were punished so harshly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but general deterrence, to send a message yes. to the general public, like we will not tolerate any form of espionage in our country. Yes, and I think so too. That's why they were, I think that's why they were so quick to, you know, just get it done and go through with the execution. Well, that's one of the co- three components of deterrence, right? It has to be certain, swift, and severe. Yep. It was, all three. Not certain. Well, no, yeah. Certainty yeah, is guess. when you get caught and it's yeah. like... It, but I guess, the reason, I guess the reason I say certainty is because... I don't think that they knew that if we commit espionage, we're going to get the death penalty. Right. You know Got what I mean? It. But Got no, okay. but you could. Okay. Anyway, um, the only, I, those are the theories I had. The only other thing I want to add is there might be a little bit of enemy theory, institutional enemy, maybe, because some people say the reason why, although Julius was very much, he very much believed in communism, they were also struggling a lot financially and he was getting money from giving secrets. Understood. So I don't think that was the primary motivation, but we can't ignore the fact that they were struggling financially and he was getting paid for this. Right. Okay. I would agree with that. I also think by them focusing on Ethel and Julius, they were ignoring some other people that were right under their nose. So there were concerns about Robert Oppenheimer's security status. Do you remember? Do you know who Robert Oppenheimer is? I don't recall. Okay. So he was the leader of the Manhattan Project. And many of his associates were communists, including his wife and his girlfriend. But that's another story. Oh, gosh. <laughs> For another time. So my point is that I think it's like tunnel vision. Everyone mm-hmm. spent, you know, they were spending so much time trying to get Ethel and Julius that they were ignoring maybe some other people who were involved in the Manhattan Project that were potentially leaking secrets as well. Right. And I'm sure there were others. I, w- I would assume there were others. Yes. Well, let me ask you, did the system get it right with Julius? He was guilty. Yeah. Should he have been executed? I I probably would say no, even though I'm not universally opposed. I would say no. But I think he was guilty. Yes. So they're right. But the punishment was too severe for me. And with Ethel, I already told you, I just don't see enough evidence to show that she was guilty at all and to warrant the death penalty. Absolutely not. I agree. I don't think they had enough evidence to even indict her. No. I mean. But then again, that's where that uh, phrase, you could indict a ham sandwich comes from. You've heard that? No. no? Yeah. Like indictments are not that hard to secure. No. They're, they're very focused on one side. Yeah. So I didn't mention um, Ethel and Julius's two little boys. Oh, what happened? So they were adopted by a very loving family. They both went on to have amazing careers. One was like an economist and one was uh, something in the political sphere. Oh. Um, they both, they wrote books. Um, they're very outspoken. And you just have to look up some interviews with them yeah. because they talk about how First of all, I don't know how both of they lost both of their parents and they both I think they were lucky and they were adopted into a very loving home because this could have had really the opposite um, effect on them. But they don't fault their mother. You know, they believe that they that she that she loved her children and she wanted nothing more than her children to be cared for. Right. But the only way 
that they saw that Ethel could have avoided the death penalty was giving up Julius. Right. And then she would have to live with pretty much telling her children, I killed your father. Some say for Ethel, she would rather her children not have to live with that. I'm glad that her children went on to become happy, successful, productive Mm -hmm. people. I feel like that's maybe one of the silver linings. You know, in these tragedies, we usually try to find, or Mm -hmm. we're often able to find some good outcome. And I'd say at least for them, that is, you know, I'm glad their lives um, were destroyed because of this. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure they struggled a lot to get to that point. But this case, I could probably talk another hour about it, but it's already about 20 pages. So, uh, Megan, I think we will stop there unless you have anything else to add. What's? Can you just remind everyone what the book is and who wrote it again? Yes, it's called Ethel Rosenberg. And the reason I love this book is because if you look, everything puts them together. The Rosenberg trial, the Rosenberg case. Okay. But Ethel and Julius, like it's not fair for Ethel to be lumped in with Julius. Right. So Anne Seba wrote a biography She didn't know Ethel personally, but they grew up in the same time in the same area. And she talks about writing this biography because she didn't think it was fair that Ethel didn't have her own story. I love that. It's such a good book. Okay. Well, we encourage everyone to go out and get it. Yes, again, it's just called Ethel Rosenberg. So it's very easy to remember. But thank you all for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's show include Ethel Rosenberg by Anne Seba, JWA.org, Life Magazine, several articles from the New York Times, FBI.gov, and History.com.